0: off about 3 weeks ago with Paul and his 275 shipmates hopelessly pra- trapped in a deadly storm helpless they had drifted for nearly 600 miles in just 14 days from the isle of Crete all the way to the isle of Malta across open sea and the only explanation for their survival was really the miraculous intervention of god it, because it was in otherwise a unsurvivable situation. And if you have never been involved in storms, especially in craft like the one they were in, you may not be able to appreciate it. But I guarantee you, this was a deadly event that shouldn't have been survivable. Now, a spirit-filled man like Paul and his cohorts might still see the divine presence despite feeding on nothing else but fear for 14 days straight but most were not spiritual men on this ship these were what we call carnal men the greek word is sarkikos men of the flesh they're people who are only informed by what they can know by their own senses what they can see what they can hear what they feel what they touch what they can smell basically even when it comes to their intellectual processing of events paul wrote to the philippians and said in verse chapter 3 verse 19 that they mind only the things that are earthly. In other words, they see life only on a materialistic plane, which doesn't make them unusual. In fact, that makes them much more characteristic to the nature of people today. But their senses have become even more dull because of terror, because of hunger, because of sleeplessness. And the only hope they clung to is that which is common to most people who are in difficult situations. You try to figure out how can I save myself? It's rare that we say that I expect God by some divine deliverance to step into my moment. Oh, we may throw up foxhole prayers, but in reality, that's what they are. They're just Hail Marys, if you will, to God, hoping uh, hoping against all hope that somehow he will rescue us but even men who do such praying scarcely believe that it will actually make a difference. We only find that it's faith in the one true God, faith that he is capable of seeing us through things in a way that makes it undeniable that God is both in control of the good things that happen in our life as well as sometimes the bad things. <coughs> Excuse me, I, <clears throat> I brought back a, a Middle Eastern virus with me that... If you'd like me to share with you, I will. I'm going hang on to this. <clears throat> this is where we find most of us and where our struggles begin. We see circumstances that are hard to manage and hard to understand and even harder for us to believe that a good God could let something so bad happen to us and still remain a good God with good purposes in mind. And part of the problem we have is that God often chooses great to display his great power (coughs) by putting us in the grip of great problems. And we don't appreciate it. Far greater than something we can solve by oftentimes our depleting resources. I mean, there's an adage that comes to mind. You've heard it. No pain, no gain. Now, the only people I know who appreciate that are people who are getting help from steroids. But for the rest of us, it's not something we're attracted to. In fact, I would say it's a concept for most people is unfamiliar to them, even amongst many Christians. It's overly familiar to those of us who, though, understand what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, and that's the key word, wishes. If you, you really want to follow after him, I mean, there's a lot of people who are Christianized and who are churchinized and, and, and profess to be Christians, but they don't really want to follow Jesus. They would like to wear the necklace, but they don't want to carry the cross. And he says that if you want to come after me, he says, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. This is the great exchange that God calls us into, that when I come to him as a follower, in the truest sense, it means that I am willing to exchange the life that I am trying to live in this world for the life that he has for mine. And the internalized conflict that many of us have is we're trying to have it both ways. And I'm not saying some of us, I mean all of us, myself included. We want to have it both ways. You know, I, I want to go to Israel and have beautiful weather and I want to come back to Spokane and have beautiful weather. And I'm not getting it both ways. It's not just one, one of Jesus' many hard sayings, because there were many that were hard, that many of his early followers complained about, but it's also an essential truth if one is really going to live life effectively. You see, this teaching rubs many Christians and many churchians, I would say, wrong. I mean, frankly, it flies in the face of our most positive forms of popular Christianity that teach us that if you just have enough faith, you can attain unlimited health and wealth and happiness without any hardships. It's a the- theology that the apostle Paul called muthos, or we our word, myth. But when he said it, it meant something that was an invented falsehood. It was a, <coughs> he called it a hollow and deceptive teaching. In fact, the King James called it science, falsely so called. It's fake science. It's human tradition where you find that cultural trends influence how we see things, and it's based simply upon, he said, the elements of this world. In other words, you look at the world only in terms of materialistic dynamics, and you say to yourself, I want my life to always be healthy, wealthy, and wise. What can I do to navigate that? I found it fascinating as I was watching National Geographic with my wife last night and uh, the actor Chris Helmsworth, who is uh, incredibly good-looking and well-built and in great physical condition, reminded me never. But as I was looking at him, he's doing this special on finding the essentials of life, how to live and extend your life as long as you possibly can. And I thought to myself... My father-in-law is 99 years old, and he wants to die. I mean, it's this idea that somehow you can do all the right things, and you'll never have to come to the real hardship, and there's never been anybody who's ever been able to successfully avoid it. There's not enough Botox in the world. You know, there's not enough corrective surgeries. There's not enough replacement parts. There's nothing that can hold off or withstand the fact that life is difficult. As Job would say, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of troubles. And we would say, well, obviously he was having a depressive moment. No, I think he's having a very objective moment. (laughs) Because there are joys in life, there are celebratory moments, but there are things that are often heartbreaking and you can't do anything to avoid it. So that this teaching that people put forth, instead of teaching us that there are easy times that are ahead of us. Paul very honestly said in places like 1422, he says, we must through, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. The word tribulation, Greek word thlipsis, means pressure and anguish, distress, persecution, hardship, sufferings of body and mind. That if we want to enter God's kingdom, we're going to find that this is going to be the natural course. In fact, that's why Paul said in his last words to Timothy before he was executed, he said, endure hardships with us. Endure hardships with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That is as Peter would later say as he was waiting his execution, don't act as if some strange thing has happened to you. This is the path. You see, the result of such theology leads us to the timeless in the the powerful testimonies of the great saints that we read about in biblical history. Men and women who forged and formed uh, their lives not through health, wealth, happiness and getting their own way, but rather through enduring faith in the face of real problems in a real world, in real time, with real opposition opposition that was both human and spiritual and usually at a very real personal cost. As the writer of Hebrews would remind us, he says, By faith, Abraham was tested. By faith, Moses, he said, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin considering the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. By faith, he said, they conquered kingdoms, they performed acts of righteousness, they obtained promises. And so we look at that and say, yes, that's it. By faith, we can gain all these things, but then he has to keep on talking. He says, but also they experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonments and unfortunately the list is longer and they were stoned and they were sawn in two, which is what happened to Isaiah. He was literally cut in half with a sword or a saw. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword, being destitute and afflicted and ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground and all these having gained approval through their suffering of faith. You see, even Paul, the great preacher, evangelist, prophet, and healer, admitted to the Philippians, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I'm often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. It's an amazing statement, because he's talking about people within the church. They're the enemies of the idea of the cross of Christ. They teach a crossless Christianity, whose end, he says, is destruction, whose real God is their appetite, their appetite. It's interesting what really drives them from moment to moment is what they want to consume. In modern times, this has been both the great witness of the church and also the great weakness of the church. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned 80 years ago before his death at the hands of the Nazis, he says, if we have watered down the gospel into emotional uplift, which makes no costly demands of us, we will have forgotten the cross is also about rejection. Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Similarly, Reinhard Niebuhr, 70 years ago, saw in the American gospel, he said something that was devoid of suffering, devoid of service, devoid of commitment, devoid of sacrifice based on a growing number of pulpits that preached this empty message. He said, it turns out to be a God without wrath, calling men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. And he bemoaned what is left as a gospel without sin, adherence to that gospel without repentance, who seek God only for his blessings and insist that he is a distant, amoral, all-accepting being who is limited by his own inability to do anything but to show us approval and affection. Effectually, they're turning Matthew 16, 24 on its head so that it bears no resemblance to the cross or the Christ of the Bible. It flies in the face of what the writer of Hebrews called that great cloud of witnesses surrounding us who urge us to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, these saints that went before endured not because they wanted to win at life, but because they wanted to find something more rare and more precious than simple success, which lasts for a moment. They were looking for what Jesus said, rest for their souls. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How will he give us rest? Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle, and I'm humble in heart, and my yoke is easy, and my load is light. I love the way that W.E. Vine explained it in his expository dictionary of New Testament words. He says, Christ's rest is not a rest from work, but in work. Not a rest of inactivity, but of the harmonious working of all faculties and all affections because each has found in God the ideal sphere for its satisfaction and development, found in the ideal sphere of being in God. This fact explains alone how men like Polycarp or even men like Tyndale allow themselves to be burned alive at the stake rather than recant their faith in Christ. It explains even in modern times how people like Richard and Sabina Wormbrand would accept imprisonment and torture for 14 years under the communists because they simply insisted that Christianity and communism were incompatible and therefore could not be serving at the same time. You have to serve one, you can't serve both masters or even less-known saints, men like Roddy Edmonds, who in 1945, as a major sergeant in the U.S. Army, and the 101st Airborne was captured at the Battle of the Bulge and put into a prison camp with 1,275 other soldiers who had been caught by that surprise attack. As the highest-ranking non-com, he was in charge of all of those 1,275 soldiers. So when the commandant, the Nazi commandant, ordered him to only call Reverly to the parade ground the next morning for the Jews. I only want Jews on the parade ground. But Edmunds complied, sort of. I'll read How the story goes, it said Edmund had all 1,275 prisoners appear. In a fury, the German Commandant rushed up to Edmunds and placed his pistol against Edmunds' head and demanded that he identify the Jewish soldiers under his command. Instead, Edmunds responded, we are all Jews here, and told the Commandant if he wanted to shoot the Jews, he would have to shoot all the prisoners. He then warned the commandant that if he harmed any of the the prisoners, he would be prosecuted after the war, which was soon coming to an end, for war crimes. And since the Geneva Convention required prisoners to give only their name, rank, and serial number, religious was not required. And the commandant backed down. Later, it was found out that he saved the lives of over 200 men who were Jews. His story was never told. He died without even telling his own children, which is remarkable because when his son found his diaries after his death and was reading through it, he read this account, and then he began searching out other people, and he found other soldiers said, yeah, that's exactly what happened. He wasn't a man who was looking for glory, but he was a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and he knew what he was being told to do was wrong. And he wouldn't violate his conscience. I think what a contrast. How unlike the unnamed soldiers in our story. (laughs) Without Christ's spirit in your heart, life for them was only a matter of mortal survival. And survival at any cost. Even if everyone else died through their abandonment, which would have happened because then the ship would have had nobody to direct it, but would have certainly crashed among the shoals. But all that mattered to them in that dog-eat-dog world in which they lived was their own personal survival, even if only for a few more years. As the writer of Hebrews explained, their lives were within the constant grip of the fear of death. I love how the text reads it. Rather than relying upon God, they relied upon their own senses. And they sensed that land was approaching, and so they thought, I've got to save myself. Soon their senses were confirmed by the soundings that they were getting into shallower and shallower waters, which they knew was a good sign and a bad sign. Because not only would they be getting close to the shore, but there were many shoals and reefs and sandbars that could sink a ship as certainly as any wave that might come. So immediately this crew begins plotting, probably including the captain and the owner of well, a way of abandoning the ship and all of the passengers by climbing into the lone lifeboat that they had, which could easily float over any impediment any potential obstacle. They wanted the easiest way and the safest way out. When you think about that, that's how most people navigate their lives. How do I avoid conflict? How do I find the easiest way? Maybe it goes against what I believe, but you know, I just, I just wanna get along and I, and I don't wanna have any problems. Somehow, whether by divine revelation, rumor, or just downright good hearing, Paul discovered their plan, and he ratted them out. He went to the centurions and the soldiers on the ship and telling them, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And he wasn't saying that God was going to kill them if they left the ship. He said, basically, we'll be left abandoned, and we have no idea. But God has told me if they're not guiding the ship, it will crash, and we will die. Their cowardice was disappointing, but not all that surprising or even unusual. Even within ourselves, we see that kind of cowardice. We don't want to admit it. We'd like to pretend that it's not true. I suspect the cowardice that they had is more common than courage. Because as Satan noted in Hebrews He said that most men cower through life, scared to death of death. Cower through life, scared to death of death. As Satan declared in Job, he said, a man will give all he has for his own life. So, what is unusual and noteworthy in stories is not the fearfulness or the cowardness of this crew. It makes perfectly sense when you look at it from a human perspective. But what is unusual is the courage displayed by Paul and his cohorts, his team, that we don't find him going up and saying, hey, I know what you guys are planning, and I'm gonna tell the centurion unless you let me get in the boat with you. Think about that for a moment. How many of us might very well be tempted to do that? I could save myself by not saying anything. I think about Roddy Edmonds, who could have said, "I can save myself by not t- by by telling the Jews they had to go out by themselves." I could save more by betraying the Jews, and then they applauded me, said, "Well, that, what else? Cho- what other choice do you had? You had to make some kind of compromise. It was out of your hands. You made the right choice." And yet, here was a man of a remarkable character who said. No, I will not betray the trust that has been placed in me. I don't want to imply that there is no fear in men or women of faith, but rather they choose not to follow the fear and instead choose to follow faith in Christ. See, God's message was clear stay in the boat, don't bail. Which brings me to our our most recent moment in history, a time that has corrosively been controlled by fear more than faith. We are encouraged to be fearful about everything. Everything is raised to a fever pitch of hysteria. Yet has been going on for some time. It's been over the last decade, we've seen brave souls like Baronella Stutzman from Tri Cities here, in fact, or Jack Phillips from Colorado, uh, or Lori Phillips, another uh, artist who have been sued and fined and harassed and financially destroyed by our own state and federal governments and courts because they simply say they are unwilling to sell their creative gifts in sport of the LGBTQ agenda. Few were the churches who refused to close their doors when we were told that we had to by the regime that demanded if we didn't do so, we would be facing consequences. That after all, churches weren't essential, although pot shops, bars, and other pleasure services like gambling and casinos, they were essential services so they could stay open. But not churches. To the point of being so ludicrous and extreme that you were told that you had to, if you wanted to come to church, you had to schedule an appointment to attend and you had to sign a hold harmless agreement in case you got COVID and died on the way up to the pew. And You had to sit six feet from each other and you had to be masked and sprayed and dimpled. And I mean, few were the churches that said, we're not gonna do that. Men like pastors like John MacArthur or Rob McCoy and a score of others who simply felt the full wrath of the California injustice system because they said, we will not comply. Thousands of servicemen and servicewomen, first responders, doctors, nurses, teachers, and workers who lost their jobs, their reputations, their incomes, simply because they refused to climb into a leaky lifeboat based upon faux science and woke ideology. Even within our own community, even to this day, there are Teachers who are under threat. We, we have a shortage of firemen and policemen because many of them were forced out because they wouldn't take the jab. Most of these people did it because they were Christians. And yet they found so little support from the church. Most of my colleagues have remained silent just as they have been silent for decades about abortion. There are lessons that we learn from history, and as the great philosophical historian Santayana once said that those who don't learn those lessons are condemned to repeat them. But in June 1941, as the Nazi war machine seemed to be unstoppable, 50 Nazi leaders gathered in Berlin to create the final solution to the Jewish problem. It was not just a plan to clear conquered areas of Jews. It was actually a very comprehensive plan to eventually exterminate the entire Jewish population of the world. Most people think it was just relegated to those small areas. No, they, their plan, they believed that humanity could only move forward in its evolutionary progression by eliminating these vermin-like people called Jews. Now, we know that their attempt failed. They were only able to kill around six million. Over a million and a half of them were small children. It didn't fail just because Germany lost the war. It failed in large part because 22,000 people throughout Europe, most of them Christians, simply refused to look the other way. They decided that at great risk to themselves, they would protect, they would hide, they would smuggle their Jewish neighbors to safety. People like Corey Ten who lost her entire family because of that decision and she alone miraculously survived. Many lost their lives, many lost their fortunes, most of them lost their futures. Our US government refused to help turning away refugees, eventually having them land back in Germany and be executed. There were only three countries in the world that refused to comply. Denmark, in fact, when the Germans ordered him to, or or the the people of Denmark to wear a, a star if they were a Jew, he walked down to the Gestapo office and asked them to give him a star. And they said, we can't give it just for the Jews. He said, we are all Jews, give me a star. And so they decided not to give anybody a star so that the Jews in Denmark were spared identification. Little country of Albania, which was mostly Muslim, only had 200 Jews in it, but they just simply said, we won't do it, and they smuggled 200 Jews into Switzerland where they would be safe. Bulgaria, who had a fascist government, just simply said, the people said, we refuse. It violates our Christian commitments. And we will not obey the law. Don't hear much about that, do we? You see, they chose to stay in the ship of faith and not climb into the leaky lifeboat of unbelief. That's why I want to leave you with these last words of the Apostle Paul. And For those of you who have weak hearts, I want to warn you, I'm actually going to quit early. (laughs) Don't worry, it's not going to become a trend. (laughs) But I want to read you the last words of the Apostle Paul. When he said in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge? Christ, who is the judge? In an age where we talk about, oh, Jesus, he's so loving. Well, I don't doubt that at all. The fact I'm saved proves that he's loving. I think I'm a very unlovable person, generally speaking. But he's also a, a just judge who cannot ignore Sinful, willful, habitual, rebellious disobedience against God. He's going to judge the living and he's going to judge the dead. In other words, there's consequences to my behavior in this world and there's consequences even eternally. And by his, he's going to do it by his appearing and by his kingdom that he has established even now. And if you are a follower of Christ, you are part of his kingdom. He is your king. We don't bow to any pretender. And we don't obey any rule that is not of God. But Paul went on to say, Timothy, I'm going to say it to you one last time. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away from the truth and turn aside to muthos, to myths, imaginary beliefs, things that on their face are fallacious, and they'll tell you to believe in it. But you, he said, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Reject and resist the godless narratives that are swirling around you. And don't be afraid to say, that's godless nonsense. Speak up while you still have a chance to. Because someday, Paul warned, you will not be able to, they will not let you. Let's pray.